You know, on one level, this passage is all about the war between flesh and spirit, sin and the law. And in that matter, it's an important theological treatise as Paul fights the fight that we know he can win if he casts himself on his Lord. But on another level, I can't help but encounter this passage as one man's frustration with his inability to get spiritual momentum, his his existential struggle with a paralysis of action, his inability to do what he knows he needs to do, and his paralysis in the face of a call to action because his will is just not up to the challenge. Now, some might call this analysis paralysis. I think in some ways that's where we are as a, as a church right now. It's something we all have to deal with in one way or another as we're at this crossroads of heading into the future. The Greeks, and particularly the Stoics, called this stalling out. They called it akrasia. And this leads to stultitia, at which, which is often translated as foolishness. Um, it's a failure of the will that leads to a failure to act correctly. And when the will fails, when we're frozen in this analysis paralysis, we can identify a character flaw that seems unable to act decisively in the face of challenges. So keep your options open, right? Who knows what's coming next? And before you know it, we're unable to make a decision at all. Now, we know that our churches and in many ways our very lives are at this crossroads, but we really can't see the future And we prepare for every eventuality, but when we're faced with the need to act, we're just not sure. This way or that way? One way or the other? There's something we know we should do and we grasp at it, but we just get these fistfuls of fluff. What are we to do? And while some are frozen in an inability to act, others are prone to perfection in light of this. Do one thing, do it well, do it better than anybody else. And one of Aesop's fables saw this as the preferable way to go. This is the story of the cat and the fox. Now, once a cat and a fox were traveling together, and as they went along picking up provisions on the way, a stray mouse here, a fat chicken there, sorry, Dorothy, they began an argument to while away the time between bites. And as usually happens when comrades argue, the talk began to get personal. You think you're extremely clever, don't you, said the fox. You pretend to know more than I. Why, I know a whole sack full of tricks. Well, retorted the cat, I admit I know one trick only, but that one, let me tell you, is worth a thousand of yours. Just then, close by, they heard a hunter's horn and the yelping of a pack of hounds. In an instant, the cat was up a tree, hiding among the leaves. This is my trick, he called to the fox. Now let's see what yours are worth. But the fox had so many plans for escape, he couldn't decide which one to try first. He dodged here and there with the hounds at his heels. He doubled on his tracks. He ran at top speed. He entered a dozen burrows, but all in vain. The hounds caught him and soon put an end to the boaster and all of his tricks. There's something appealing in this fable. But you know what? It masks the fact that the cat's one trick has saved the cat on this occasion but it might be a lot less successful when a bald eagle comes flying through the neighborhood. You see, the answer to Paul's paralysis, his inability to act, which he identifies with sin, the answer isn't necessarily to take control of the situation as the Stoics would assert. They would say, get control of yourself, turn Stultitia into prudence. That's just what I cannot do, Paul would protest. 
The law is there. I know what I should do. I just can't. The current situation for our culture is marked out by distraction, a lack of focus. There's a world weariness in the face of a future that seems so far out of our control. I mean, maybe for a while we thought we controlled everything, but we know that illusion has been burst like that overfilled birthday balloon with the emergence of a global pandemic. We control so little. And there's a real temptation then to turn to nostalgia, look backwards. My students know I talk a lot about this. Look backwards for meaning because we cannot see where we're going. We hang on to memories that bring comfort rather than turn our desire towards the future, which is unknown and risky. There's a chapel in Italy uh, painted with frescoes by Giotto. And while your attention is drawn upwards to these elaborate pictures on the upper walls, something else is going on at the dado rail level. Here he has painted some classic medieval statues depicting classical vices and virtues. Now amongst them is a horrible picture of despair. It really is awful. And it's paired with the, with the virtue of hope. And when we're unable to grasp the potential of the moment, I think we turn backwards into nostalgia, how we did things before, that's giving in to despair, the despair of the moment when we don't know what to do. It's an unwillingness to face the future with hope. Despair is the language of the church in exile. It's the denial of the future itself when the only thing we can do is look back to glory days. Maybe when we're stuck, we'll try something we did before, whistle the old hymns in the dark to comfort ourselves in our sense of loss. No, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We've got to go back. The prophets, though, they could imagine God breaking in in the midst of despair. They had an eschatological imagination that transformed despair into hope. That holy imagination lifts our vision beyond the past to believe that God will work again, not in the same ways as before but in ways that are beyond what we see in front of us. Imagination challenges our perspective that we either control or falter and offers another take on how things really are. Imagination deals with our fear and our isolation, our desire for self-protection, to realize we have a purpose, a mission, a goal, and God has not abandoned us. You can see the reaching upwards on the fresco of despair, uh, met by the angel in the hope fresco, reaching down with a crown and as the character reaches up. There is a hopefulness to it that is transformed. So we find ourselves then in hope, lifted out of the despair of being stuck in the past, and we find ourselves in this yet new, yet familiar situation in the present. And here, a lack of holy imagination can bring us another challenge. Without being able to see what's coming, we can find ourselves frozen, unable to act, or waffling. We're keen to risk. We have loads of hope, but no way of organizing these random attempts to write a new story disconnected from the past. We'll try this. No, that. No, I, I don't know. In Giotto's frescoes, there's another figure there, Stultitia. Now, this is often translated as foolishness. I mentioned that earlier but it relates to the proper exercise of the will. This is the self that listens to so many voices that it loses a sense of direction of where it should go and ends up in this picture as being unintelligent, brutish, and lost. Stultitia. 
You know, the philosopher Foucault offers a few passages uh, from one of Seneca's uh, letters. And in the letter, Serenus complains to Seneca that the moment he resolves in a course of action, seeking public office, for instance, he abandons course. And no sooner does he quit public life than he wishes to return to it. Give me some remedy, he begs Seneca, to bring this vacillation of mine to a standstill. Serenus's condition, which is characterized by this vacillation, regret, changes of heart, and so on, this is stultitia. Serenus is a stultus, and of his kind, Foucault says this, the stultus wants several things at once, and these are divergent without being contradictory. He doesn't want one thing and one thing absolutely. The stultus wants something and at the same time regrets it. Thus, the stultus wants glory, but at the same time regrets not living a peaceful, voluptuous life and so on. I mean, is this not what we want? We want the church to succeed, but we don't want to work too hard. We don't want those demands to suck us dry. We want this to happen, but we don't want that. I know what I ought to do and I can't do it. Who can help me? The stultus is someone who wills, but wills with inertia, lazily. His object or his willing is constantly interrupted and changes its objective. I think we see this stoic wrestling in Romans chapter 7. The good I want to do, I don't do. Instead, I do what I don't want. Wretched man that I am, Paul cries. Who can save me? Acrasia, stultitia, whatever you want to call it. Paul had it. And for the Stoics, overcoming Stultitia was the ultimate goal, a matter of learning to engage reason and direct the will. Then you could transform this vice of Stultitia into a virtue of prudentia. That is the right exercise of reason with wisdom and focus. Engaging a holy imagination in the present I think means inviting God's presence into our plans that will allow us to move through that inertia of stultitia so that our despair and our foolishness are transformed by imagination into hope, yes, and prudence. As Paul realized, who can help me? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in contrast to the Stoic, Paul sees a way through. He reaches beyond his best efforts to direct his own will an effort that he has found constantly fails. What he is unable to do, God is yet able to do. The spirit cultivated for him an imagination to see what was really real, beyond the sin and the law, beyond his own struggle. So a holy imagination, that is engaging again with the reality of a transcendent God in our imminent frame. We can believe there is a future with a hope, and with a prudence, we're confident that we can make plans for that future. Now, I think this sounds okay. I could just end here. Um, it's a good start, but I'm not sure it's enough. Prudence and hope. Is that really what it means to imagine the real? Well, another philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, he had a concept of social imagination. And someone writing about him, a guy called Pavel Barger, he argues that uh, the theologizing, uh, informed and driven by the imagination, takes place in a dynamic field, he says, between ideology and utopia. In other words, between something, a dream that can never happen, and the world that I can control. 
And we could say then that maybe prudence and hope are not goals or binaries. Maybe it's the poles between which our imagining takes place and lifts us to future possibilities. No, that's not it either. It's more than that. The spirit breaks into the midst and shows another layer of reality beyond our paralysis, beyond our need to control. And the spirit lifts our hopes and our plans to see reality from God's perspective, which is so much more real than how we interpret the world around us. Imagination challenges our prudence to remind us that we're not in control. We plan and the Lord laughs and yet plan we must. Who goes out to build a tower and doesn't count the cost? Yet holy imagination reminds us of the ways our plans make pretense to control. Holy imagination is de deconstructive and disruptive as it calls us to and yet beyond our own ability to plan for a concrete future. And you know what? It calls out our prejudices, our biases that we build into our structures and beckons us to new relationships and partnerships from which we have much to learn to break us out of those old repeated patterns. At the same time, a holy imagination keeps us from getting lost in an ethereal hope that is never realized. It challenges the pie-in-the-sky dreaming that suggests that no end could ever come to our churches or institutions. It could. It reminds us that hope is about God's presence in the trenches, as Sarah reminded us a couple of weeks ago, in the hard places, in the challenges. And imagination helps us to see what is really real. Here, then, I think, is where we can appreciate the story that we had, rightly, the story that we're in, as we begin to lean into the story that we have yet to tell. And there are many of you who are going out from us this year who have your story yet to tell. It is in the making. For all of us, it's in the making. Holy imagination lifts us from this pendulum that swings between control. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I'm directing my will and paralysis. The things I want to do, I can't do. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. Despair and hope, sin and law. Holy imagination allows us to find a way to be released from the paralysis of uncertainty, indecision, exercising our freedom to choose and, and direct our work, but without a sense that we are somehow in control. But you know what? There's still more, so much more. Holy imagination makes every door in every room an open possibility. The classroom, the office, the sanctuary, each door opens to a whole world of possibilities, yet filled with meaning and purpose. These dreams then come to dialogue with our present mission in ways that shape our next steps. Our future stories or next chapters are not straight lines that we can calculate, but open doors to worlds of wonder with paths to navigate, choices to make as we go, together with the best of our wisdom, our prudence, our hope, open possibility offers us the promise of a future. Now, for some people, I understand this kind of world of risk is scary. The world of control seems so much safer, or maybe what we've done before seems safer, or maybe we should just trust the best of our wisdom alone. But who would ever imagine a land flowing with milk and honey? Or swords turned into plowshares? Or the birth of Jesus? Or the cross of Christ? Who would have imagined the resurrection? Life has the last word. Imagine the real. You know, at the end of the film, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a poignant scene. 
the young girl wanders again into the empty room, Lucy, you'll remember her. And there's this large wardrobe standing at the back wall. And she slowly opens the door, but she's interrupted by the old professor who's sitting on the windowsill and gazing wistfully at her and the wardrobe. I don't think you'll get back in that way, he says. You see, I've already tried. And she asks, will we ever go back? You know, this world of the really real, beyond the real, will we ever go back? And he replies, I expect so. It will probably happen when you're not looking for it. All the same, best to keep your eyes open. Behind them, a light shines out of the wardrobe and Aslan roars. At this moment in our churches, we need our prudent people, those who have that virtue, the calculators, the organizers, the planners. And we need our endlessly hopeful people, those who have enough imagination to have that virtue, those who are champions and cheerleaders and who refuse to give in to despair. And what we often have are those like Paul, stuck in between. We know what we need to do, but I just can't do it. And what I want to do, I don't do. Instead, I do what I don't want to do. The challenge is too big, the drag of sin overwhelming, the opportunities too many. And in this kind of situation, we most desperately need our seers, those who are keeping their eyes open, those imbued with an imagination to see what is real beyond the vision of the eye, to the vision of the spirit, who see the world ahead, who see differently, who look outwards beyond the bounds of our institutions to a broader purpose and a farther goal. If you don't have those people, if that's not you, because most of us, let's face it, are far more like Paul. The thing I need to do, I'm not doing that. I'm kind of stuck. And we kind of know that it's good. We can gather around ourselves the people who are hopeful. We like our champions. And we can gather around ourselves the prudent people. Those are the people who like to plan. That makes sense. But we also need to gather around ourselves the seers. The seers. And they're sometimes awkward people. Let's be honest. These are the ones who look outwards. And if you don't have them, seek them out. Find those who are willing to hear the voice of God say, hey, come over and help us when you're already in the midst of so much need yourself. Or to hear the words, arise and kill and eat, something you'd never thought of before. As we consider our past story, our present story, and the story that you have yet to write, my prayer is that as we send you out at the end of this year, you will be blessed with a holy imagination that brings the reality of God's spirit to bear in your life and in your leadership and opens up a future of possibilities that you are able to navigate with prudence, with hope, and with a sense of great adventure. You go with our blessing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.